Hello, you're listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. We are a general interest independent bookstore located in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles, California. This year, because of the coronavirus pandemic, we've had to close our store and cancel in-person events. But Skylight is your neighborhood bookstore, and we are finding ways to create community even while we're far apart. In the coming weeks, we'll be putting out lots of new audio content to help you discover new books, connect with authors, and check in with your favorite booksellers. To learn more about how you can help keep Skylight alive, please visit our website at skylightbooks.com or check out our social media accounts on Twitter and Instagram. You can subscribe to the podcast on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Thank you for listening and enjoy. Hi, and welcome back to Skylit. This is the Skylight Books podcast, and I'm your host, Eve Nuno. Skylight Books is an independent bookstore located in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles, California. We are open every day from 10 to 5 for curbside pickup and mass in-store browsing. Shop online at skylightbooks.com or check out our upcoming events on Crowdcast, crowdcast.io slash skylightbooks. Today we have David Lazar. Is it Is it David Lazar or Lazar? You have to unmute yourself. <laughs> it's Lazar. Lazar. Okay. To, today we have David Lazar reading from his latest book, Celeste Holmes Syndrome, in conversation with A.S. Hamra. I'll read their bios and then uh, David will read a little bit from Celeste and then I'll let them take it away with the conversation. David Lazar is a professional, is a, is a professional. David Lazar is a professor at Columbia College, Chicago. He's the author of several books, including I'll Be Your Mirror, Essays and Aphorisms, Who's Afraid of Helen of Troy, An Essay on Love, Occasional Desire, Essays, He is the author of several books, including I'll Be Your Mirror, Essays and Aphorisms, Who's Afraid of Helen of Troy, An Essay of Love, and Occasional Desire Essays. He is the founding editor of the literary magazine Hotel America, and Celeste Holmes Syndrome is his latest book. A.S. Hamra is a writer living in Brooklyn, currently the film critic for The Baffler, he contributed a column on film to N Plus One from 2008 to 2019, and his essays and reviews have appeared in Harper's Book Forum, Cineast, and other publications. His first book, The Earth Dies Streaming, Film Writing, 2002 to 2018, was published by N Plus One Books in 2018. Um, you could both unmute yourself. Yeah, thank you both for being here. Thank you, Eve. Thank you. I'll let you two take it away. Great, thanks. Uh, well, I'm, I'm very pleased to be here talking to A.S. Hamra, who I think is is writing about film as, as well as anyone. And uh, before I, I read uh, just a few 
short passages from uh, Celeste uh, Holmes syndrome. I, I just wanted to note that when Scott and I were, were talking yesterday in preparation for our talk today, we stumbled upon a, a wonderful little uh, coincidence, and I'm a great fan of, of coincidences, which is that uh, both of our uh, fathers had customers who were, in fact, character actors that I talked about in the book, his father, uh, Nina Folk in, in Connecticut, and my father, Martin Balsam, uh, whom I wrote about in the book, which I thought was, was wow. a rather, rather charming <laughs> coincidence. Um, so uh, I'm going to start by reading just a, a few short uh, pieces from uh, the essay called My Two Oscars on Wit and Melancholy, which is about uh, the two Oscars uh, being uh, Oscar Levant. Uh, and uh, Oscar Wilde. And the epigraph of the essay is by Oscar Levant. Uh, Underneath this flabby exterior is an enormous lack of character. Um, so uh, Oscar Levant is a melancholy figure full of barbed wit, self-loathing, and rhapsody in blue, which he performed more than any other 20th century pianist. You may not know who he is, though Jack Parr, who was uh, uh, one of the earliest hosts of The Tonight Show, used to go off the air after a time saying, good night, Oscar Levant, wherever you are. Jimmy Durante used to say, good night, Mrs. Calabash, wherever you are, and no one ever knew who she was, which he must have found disconcerting. Oscar Wilde you undoubtedly know, but you may think of him staring languidly into the camera dressed as a dandy, self-pleased. I think of my two Oscars as trying to say the perfectly witty thing as a way of staying the melancholy that dare not speak its name. I think of wit as a stay against melancholy, a brief moment of verbal perfection before its self-immolation, time. Our attitude toward wit is, what have you said for me lately? Wits, whether Dorothy Parker or Oscar Levant, friends, by the way, or Oscar Wilde or Samuel Johnson, make their own traps that wit springs them out of, expectation. The only way a wit can stop being a wit is to be dull, a melancholy resolution. Oscar Levant looked a bit like a cross between Leslie Caron and Delmore Schwartz on a bad day, except for his long fingers, which must have played Rhapsody in Blue a thousand times. If you don't know who Leslie Caron and Delmore Schwartz are, let's say Levant looked like a moon for the misbegotten with bad teeth. So early in the sesi, I keep asking if you know who people are. That really means I'm concerned about my age and yours, about whether this is a December-May essay, which might be a melancholy affair. Like Leslie Caron, with whom he starred in, in An American in Paris, when he was known as one of the wittiest men in America, Levant had moony eyes. This was before he spiraled into multiple psychiatric commitments, addiction, and electric shock therapy. He would emerge one of the wittiest broken men in America in the first full-fledged American performative psychodrama. He prefigured reality TV and the performance comedy of the, the neurotic self in, uh, in actor comedians. I'm going to jump ahead a little bit. 
I'm not sure if any of us quite know what a genius is, but Levant did. It was George Gershwin, and he measured himself against Gershwin disastrously. How melancholy to become the memorialist for the man you loved, the man I love, and against whom you measure yourself so severely. All of Levant's film performances, from Romance on the High Seas to Humoresque, to the Barclays of Broadway, to An American in Paris, are variations on the theme of Oscar Levant, the amanuensis of love, the musical third wheel. Oscar is always there to help speed or console the romantic action, but along the way he gives us bracing asides. He'll tell us that, quote, my psychiatrist once said to me, maybe life isn't for everyone, end quote. He's the tonic to the saccharine action. And I'm just gonna jump ahead to the end here. He said, quote, I admire Leonard Bernstein, but not as much as he does, end quote, end quote. He uses music as an accompaniment to his conducting, end quote. He said famously, I'm just gonna drop quotes here. He said famously, I knew Doris Day before she was a virgin. He said of Eisenhower, once he makes up his mind, he's full of indecision. The line that got him taken off the air on live television in 1958, now that Marilyn Monroe has converted to Judaism, Arthur Miller can eat her. Of Grace Kelly, she married the first prince who asked of himself, I'm a study of a man in chaos, in search of frenzy. But there was something wounded, something vulnerable in his mien before he became outright self-destructive. That happened right after he filmed Bandwagon in 1953, after his heart attack, when fear of death sent him chasing after it into Demerol addiction. And I think I'll stop there. Well, that was great. You know, Oscar Levant is a strange uh, person to choose in a way as a character actor because he had a whole life outside of the cinema and he was a personality that people knew uh, throughout the country for his appearances as himself on the radio, on the stage and concerts and so on. And he, um, uh, you know, essentially played himself in movies, even when he right. was playing a character. Right, right. He, uh, yeah, that's right. It's almost as though uh, film were, were a kind of afterthought. But, but you know, he also prefigures. Uh, one of the things that interests me is he, pre you know, if you think of something like My Dinner with Andre, you know, he prefigures, uh, you know, the, the whole idea of the, uh, you know, of, of, of the fictionalized self, you know, which we've gotten so, so accustomed to, you know. Uh, I think he's, he's one of the earliest versions of that. Um, yeah. He is kind of like Wallace Shawn in a way, but he's much more severe and even kind of threatening sometimes in his melancholy. He once said, you quote in your essay, um, Oscar, Oscar Levant once said, I said outrageous things that not, that not only frightened me, but the whole community. Right. And you know, Scott, that's uh, one of the things that, that interests me is that, you know, both, you know, character actors generally, but, uh, but perhaps, uh, no one more so than Levant is, uh, is that, you know, he's off to the side, you know, he's the supporting actor, but uh, his presence is so uh, incredibly or threatens to be so disruptive, you know? Yes. Uh, 
so transgressive, yeah. He does have a tendency to take over every scene that he's in without really doing anything a lot of the time. He, he's like Peter Lorre in that way, and they, they, mm -hmm. they, share a sa same, they share the same kind of baleful expression. Uh, they're physically similar even. Right, these mournful little, uh, almost grotesque Jewish men. You know, who who are acting almost in a movie, uh, you know, of, you know, a movie in their own minds, a movie of their own making, uh, in in every movie they appear in, which on some level is always the same movie. You know? Right. Uh, so, but in your book, when you define a character actor, um, you know, the the type that a Oscar Levant or Peter Lorre is is really not what you have in mind, I don't think, or you say there are two kinds of character actors. What are the right. two kinds that you... Right, well, they, they epitomize, you know, an, an a very extreme version of one, right, which is the character actor who, uh, who has uh, a readily identified persona, which they more or less uh, bring from film to film, which someone like uh, uh, Franklin Pangborn uh, whom we were talking about yesterday uh, would bring uh, from film to film. Someone whom the audiences could say, oh yes, there's that character actor who's going to perform that set of characteristics that they, they tend to do in every film. But then there's the, the character actor who's also just simply more actorly, who tends to disappear uh, into a role and uh, more chameleon-like and, uh, and, and simply can play uh, a great, a great variety of roles and, and can be plugged in uh, almost anywhere. Uh, so, I mean, in, in sort of uh, gross terms, I, I think those are the those are the two the two varieties we mostly see. Well, you you, know, you start the book talking about Thelma Ritter, who for many people you say is the quintessential character actor, right? And she's known she in a way is known more than any other character actor because of the great luck she had in the films that she was in, you know, Rear right. Window, All About Eve, uh, Pick Up on South Street, and some others. Uh, but you also say at the beginning of the book that you didn't want to talk about her right away. Why, why is that? That's a great question. Um, some, uh, perhaps that's uh, on some level my writerly stubbornness, just because uh, everyone is, is, expecting, is expecting it so much. And, uh, and I was wanting to talk about perhaps some actors who, uh, uh, you know, who were a little less known, uh, a little less perhaps uh, obvious. Um, but, you know, one of the things that's interesting about Ritter is that in some ways, and I, I'd love to hear what you think about this too, of course, but in some ways she really threads the two kinds that I'm speaking of, which is she both brings something uh, familiar from role to role while, while being a rather extraordinary actress who uh, you know? Who, who uh, you know? Who does in fact play very different kinds of roles? So, so in a way, she kind of splits the difference. I mean, her role in the Misfits is wildly different, after all, from her role in Pick Up on South Street. But there is still this. There is still some quality, uh, some Thelma Ritterish quality, right, in both films. Yes, and she brings this to undistinguished films too that we don't remember as much. So if we happen to be seeing one and she shows up, it kind of transforms the film into something else. Right, that's right. Uh, you know, great character actors like, like Ritter always, you know, always transform, uh, uh, you know, always transform, you know, even, uh, you know, an, 
an almost unwatchable or banal film. I mean, there are films I'll stay and watch just uh, just to see uh, right a great character performance, and you know, Ritter Ritter of course would be would be one of them. Yeah, yeah. I I was I was watching a TV commercial from the early seventies that starred. It was a Japanese TV commercial and starred <laughs> Charles Bronson, uh-huh. and it was for it was for a cologne called Mandum. Cologne. <laughs> and in the commercial, Bronson is exiting a hotel, and the doorman is played by Percy Helton. Percy Helton. Wow. So okay. this totally changed the dynamic of the this thirty second ad that was made by made by the Japanese film director who made the film House. Because right. if you know, if you're familiar with Percy Helton, to see him show up in a TV commercial in Japan with Charles Bronson is very uh, disorienting. Right. He he has one line and that's it. And then Bronson gets into a car and drives away. But it it totally, it kind of undercut Bronson. You know, Bronson is Charles Bronson. He's very macho. He's, you know, dynamic and he's in this ad because, because of his fame. But then Helton comes along just to hold the door for him. And it just, it does something strange to the ad, you know? Right. And, but, you know, yes, that's, that's, that's a great example. But, you know, I think character actors, you know, in that sense, were frequently performing a kind of function for the leads, which is, I mean, the the leads were were always threatening, you know, to be these, uh, you know, in the golden uh, age, you know, to be these versions of demigods. And uh, character actors were, you know, would frequently undercut them, right? Um, you know, bring them, you know, cut them down, down to size a little bit, you know, mock them a little bit. And right. in, in that sense, you know, humanize them and, uh, and well, ironically make them even, even more appealing, um, uh, to, uh, to the crowd. Um, so, uh, so I, you know, I think that's, that's a, re- a really familiar function of, of the character actor. Well, one thing, one thing kind of aligned with that in your book is that you talk a lot about women character actors and how they were often forced to play women who were either much older than they were themselves. In the case of Nina Foch or Nina Fock, I'm not sure how to pronounce it properly. We always said Nina Foch in my house. But um, Nina Foch, you know, is playing someone in American Paris with Gene Kelly and Leslie Caron and Oscar Levant, who is, you know, supposed to be, I guess, older than she is. Right. And therefore, and therefore unsuitable for, for Gene Kelly, who ends up with this gammon figure played by Leslie Caron. And in your book, you talk about kind of the unfairness of these uh, portrayals, uh, you know, that certain women were forced to play. And also that there, there's something about character actors that, you know, they always seem older than the stars, even when they're not. Right. Even when they're the same age. Yeah. 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 Well, this, yes. Well, the group of women, yeah, I talk about uh, are a group of women that I'm uh, extremely fond of as, you know, as performers. And I, I suppose I, I bonded with them, you know, in, in several different ways when I was young, too. Uh, Nina Foch, uh, uh, Eleanor Powell, uh, uh, Eve Arden, Celeste Holm, uh, you know, uh, all of whom gave these these wonderful performances, all of whom were fairly young. I mean, between, uh, let's say, 30 and 40, uh, w- when they gave these wonderful performances in uh, Sound of Music, in American in Paris, uh, 
uh, uh, Eve Arden in just about every, you know, anything from Mildred Pierce to Romance on the High Seas, you name it, she was in, you know, 100, 100 150 films. Uh, uh, you know, all, all very charming, all very witty, uh, all very sophisticated, and all invariably thrown over by the male leads, you know, by Sinatra, by, uh, uh, by Gene Kelly, uh, for, uh, for Ingenue. And, uh, and as you say, in the case of, of Nina Foch, um, she was uh, actually younger than Gene Kelly. Gene Kelly, you know, trying to play young. I don't know about you, but it's, it's, I've always found it extremely um, silly when, uh, when actors try to, try to play down their age. I mean, you know, there are a million actors from Gary Cooper to, to Fred Astaire, who at least does it with, with some grace, you know, who, who try to appear, uh, you know, boyish, you know, as a way of making their courtship of a very, very young woman less objectionable. Uh, but in this case, in fact, Nina Foch, who's playing the older woman, is uh, in fact seven years younger than uh, than Gene Kelly actually was. And, uh, and you know, uh, her the maturity of her demeanor, you know, almost allows them to sort of pull it off. But it still doesn't quite work for me. And I, I, you know, the whole thing makes my head spin and my stomach churn. So. Uh, well, the, the, that film is a Vincent Minnelli film, and as is The Bandwagon, yes. which we right. talk about in the book, and also The Cobweb, which is not a musical. All right. those films have Oscar Levant in them. And right. he, he seems to be there to position, you know, us. In, in relation to these characters, yet he's, you know, all, all these films are kind of about sadness and right. have a mournful quality, especially yeah. the bandwagon, where the age of a stare right. becomes an issue in the film. Um, right. Bandwagon, one of the things I love, Bandwagon is maybe my favorite musical. And uh, one of the things I love about it is that, yes, you're absolutely right, is in many ways it's, you know, it's, it's a melancholy musical. Uh, I mean, it, uh, it begins with, with a stare sort of, celebrating his male spinsterhood and uh, and then you know of course at the very end they because you know it's a classic Hollywood comedy musical he pulls love out of a hat but but for much of the, much of the film ha has this kind of mournful quality about aging in it uh, I mean dancing in the dark is lovely and romantic but even it has this uh, has this kind of mournful quality and uh and you know there you have you know levant as the kind of patron saint of uh of of melancholy and in, in all of these films in um you name the book for celeste holm uh but it, it seems to me that in the book there's an actress you talk about maybe a little bit more than her who's jesse royce landis yeah who many probably fewer people know who jesse royce landis is than celeste holm Right, I think she, uh, you know, I think uh, Jesse Royce Landis, who had a long career and whose earlier films, I, I think, are uh, are mostly, uh, you know, forgotten, or whose roles in them have, you know, haven't been uh, uh, remembered, you know, quite as uh, notably, is is mostly known or mostly remembered for two performances in, uh, in Hitchcock films: the performance as Grace Kelly's mother in To Catch a Thief and uh, her performance as uh, uh, Cary Grant's mother in, um, 
North by Northwest. And one of the things I love about her performance is, again, she's, she's very witty and, and she gives these very uh, maturely sexualized performances uh, in uh, uh, To Catch a Thief before, uh, before and after Cary Grant Court's Grace Kelly, she flirts outrageously with, with Cary Grant, uh, which he uh, seems to, in the film, seems to find, uh, you know, terribly, well, amusing and interesting. There's the famous moment in To Catch a Thief where Cary Grant says to her, you must sleep very soundly. Uh, and she bats her eyes as if she's about to eat him up and says, I do. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, you know, of course, in, uh, in North by Northwest, there's the, uh, you know, the, the classic Hitchcock Oedipal relationship between mother and son. Um, so, uh, but she pulls off both roles with, uh, with such wit and panache that, uh, uh, that, you know, I think she has an exalted place in the, in the Hitchcock canon uh, as, a, as a woman who, uh, you know, who holds, uh, holds her own with, uh, with extraordinary, uh, you know, uh, dignity and uh, dignity and comedy. Well, she also there's something about character actors that brings extra something extra special to even moments that don't really require any kind of actor. So there's a famous image in in um, is it To Catch a Thief or North by Northwest where Jesse Royce Landis puts out the cigarette and the fried egg. Right, that's uh, that's to catch a thief. Yeah. Yes, right, and you know any actor could have done that, but the fact that it's her is is you know adds something to that image. Uh, that's like a key Hitchcock image in in his films. This cigarette being you know pushed into this fried egg to put it out. Right. And, you know, that, sorry. Go no, ahead. No, you go ahead, please. Well, I was going to say um, by using the same actors over and over. You know, filmmakers in the period your book covers and, and today really add another dimension to their films. So a, a lot of film directors, you know, including Hitchcock, but, you know, as you mentioned in your book, Preston Sturges had stock companies of actors that they used over and over again. And certain directors still do that today, like Christopher Guest, Wes Anderson, yeah, Christopher mm -hmm. Guest, Coen Brothers. But right. but then then the actors were not. Today, character actors are more like stars and people, people fill their films with stars in the roles of character actors. So it's like, it's like the love boat almost sometimes. <laughs> but but right. uh, a Preston Sturges film isn't like that because even though the same people are seen again and again, we don't really have any knowledge of them outside of the films a lot of the time. Right. And we don't really know their names. We just recognize them from film to film without knowing who they are. One of those actors you talk about in your book is Alan Bridge right. in Preston Sturges films. Yeah, I don't think anybody was, you know, was rushing to, to read about what, uh, what Alan Bridge was doing on his vacation, you know, in the, uh, in the early 1940s. Uh, and, uh, you know, that, that allowed, you know, this persona of his, you know, to have, you know, this, this kind of volume that, uh, you know, that perhaps the, the, you know, the character performances today uh, aren't allowed to have because there, there's a little bit too much static, you know. Uh, the actor, you know, actors today are a little bit too complicated by their fame, you know. Right. So. 
Right, and Alan Bridge, as you point out, uh, is kind of a menacing figure. But in one one film, he's uh, you know he's supposed to be menacing because he's the warden of a chain gang, and then in the other film you talk about by Sturges, he's revealed to be helpful and friendly. Right, and one of the things that that makes uh, his role in uh, Miracle of Morgan's Creek, where he ends up being uh, helpful, uh, uh, so moving, is uh, is that you know he undercuts his. Uh, as you as you say, he undercuts his own menace. Um, he was a very imposing man, and uh, you know, tall, thin, sort of uh, bent, uh, and uh, and so uh, and so when when he softens, uh, it's uh, it's actually and towards uh, towards the uh, the, uh, the central protagonist in Miracle of Morgan's Creek, who's in a really tough spot. Uh, I mean, she's, it's the mid 1940s and she's an, uh, an unwed mother. And uh, he, uh, he cuts his uh, patriarchal disapproval with, uh, uh, with some real human sympathy. And, uh, and, you know, that gives the moment this, uh, this you know, this real emotional resonance. Another, um, another actor that Sturges used, you have a whole chapter about, uh, well, actually, two actors you put to one chapter are uh, Eric Lord and Franklin Pangborn, who you mentioned earlier, right. who, who represent real types. Yeah. You know, they, they represent two very clear, distinct types in classical Hollywood cinema that they right. are the kind of apotheosis of. One is, the, one is the deferential English butler who's also undercutting the hero, and right. the other is the kind of um, you know, queer assistant manager who's always exasperated. Right. Yeah. And, uh, you know, to, and to some extent, yes, as you put it, these types had been around for a long time. I mean, they're, they're represented in silent and silent film, too. And uh, uh, in fact, there's a little bit of queerness in, in both types, I think. Um, uh, but uh, but both uh, but uh, Pangborn and, and Bloor were uh, were I think uh, the, you know, the epitome of, of the playing of both types. And, and in fact, they played both types. You know what made both of them so special was they, they brought out all of the complications in both types. Uh, the fact that yes, I mean, for example, in in um, Pangborn's case, there, there was a sense of of undercutting and deference uh, of uh, of uh, 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 self-deprecation and self-importance. I mean, his his role is always cut, you know cut about eight different ways. Um, and, uh, and, you know, there was this early sense, he was always an organization man of some kind who was frustrated, which, which is also, you know, a very early type of uh, sort of the organization man, man in the gray flannel suit too. Um, but, uh, but he, you know, to that, he added the, the exaggerations of, uh, of the, you know, the early, early talkie actor, the great, you know, uh, facial exaggerations and, and, and that kind of thing. Uh, plus with, with a certain kind of, there was something in his eyes though that, that I always responded to, a certain kind of, of sadness in the eyes that, that muted all of the, uh, the manic comic stuff. Well, Pangborn, by the 1950s, the, the organization man, as you mentioned, was kind of a heroic figure who was seen as someone struggling to get out of his, you know, social anomie and be an individual. 
Whereas Pangborn is merely trapped in that role. He, he right. struggles against it, but there's no sense, there's no heroic sense to anything he does at all. He's merely frustrated and exasperated and uh, annoyed. Right, that's right. And then part of that too is, is the fact that he's, I mean, he's frequently uh, talked about as, I mean, he's, I think, so clearly closeted um that there's that that sense in in many of his films of you know of someone who's you know uh you know just uh, desperate to to break out of let's put many many of you know many of his repressed roles let's put it that way right um, yeah uh the there's there's a whole chapter about an actor who's kind of more than a character actor, but less than a lead actor, who I think is a really great actor. And I love to see him whenever he shows up in movies. And that's Jack Carson. Yeah. Yeah. Master so, of the double take. Yeah. Yes. And, and he, he was kind of a lead actor, but not really a lead actor. Right. That's right. Yeah. And I think, that, yeah. No, I was just going to say now he's known more for his, his second lead or character parts than he was for any leads that he ever did. Right. The thing that was, I, I, I love watching Jack Carson. Um, uh, he's actually, uh, he actually had, as you point out, a really interesting career uh, and could do a lot of stuff. Um, uh, he was, he was a very good dramatic actor, in fact, uh, you know, even though his role almost has a kind of light comic touch, uh, he's he very, very good in Mildred Pierce, you know, one of his most famous roles. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, in, in other, other dramatic films, too, Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, late in his career, straight yes. dramatic role. Um, so, you know, so he could, he could act, you know. On the other hand, he did all of these, you know, uh, these sort of goofy uh, 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 films with Dennis Morgan, you know, in the, in the 1940s. Uh, these goofy, you know, uh, uh, you know, boy films. Um, uh, and, um, and, uh, and again, he's most well known for, for the, this kind of double takey sort of, uh, shticky hammy comedy stuff, but, but it's only, you know, one part of, of what he could do. Um, so yeah, he was the, he was a sidekick. He was a light comic lead. He was a serious actor, uh, and, uh, and Hollywood just used, used him a lot. And, um, well, he, he seems to me, he's kind of a Jeff Daniels type, uh -huh. but, but he's better in a, in a sense than Jeff Daniels because he never has to be a good person. Right. Uh, and he's, you know, as you point out in the book, he often plays shifty, untrustworthy people, you know, salesman types, people on the make that are kind of transparent in their, you know, in their striving. He, he yeah. never, he, he never tries to be a good person in, in his roles, but yeah, we or... like him more because of that. Absolutely, and and in fact, or 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 we have an edge that that cuts in in several ways that that we're just trying to figure out. One of my f favorite moments in in Carson's career is when he slugs James Mason in A Star Is Born, um, and I you know I I think most of the <laughs> most of the audience probably read that moment sympathetically to James Mason. I always you know whenever I watch it, I go. Good for you, Jack Carson. You know, you know what an asshole. Um, he had it coming to him. 
Um, yeah, so, uh, he definitely deserves to be punched in that film. Uh, and that's that's kind of an interesting moment in that film because I don't know if remakes of A Star is Born have the lead actor punched out like that. Right, right. But, uh, uh, you know, yeah, Carson died, you know, relatively young, unfortunately. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Uh, and it's always, you know, it's uh, there is always this kind of weird uh, uh, temporal, uh, well, both poignance and uh, and sense of almost asymmetry when when you read about somebody like Carson who bridged these different eras of uh, of Hollywood and made you know a million films and died when they were fifty seven, you know, in, in yeah. nineteen sixty two or sixty four or something like that. His uh, his. Uh... I think it's interesting that certain actors were willing to commit to playing characters that no one would ever really like that much. That in a sense, they could never, at a certain point, they could never emerge from these roles. Right. So, yeah. So you know, Carson right. plays the person, yeah, he's always trying to sell the lead character some bill of goods. You know, <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. And, he was and, he was the character actor, a salesman. You know, but and there's there's this as as you as you uh, you know uh, very rightly point out there's a kind of aspirational modesty in his career. You know, uh, which is which is that he he takes these different roles. If you look at uh, you know if you just sort of chart his career, there's there's no sense there's not no clear sense at all of building towards something great. No. I mean, uh, there's just it, it's just this grab bag variety of do, doing a lot of different things, which which actually I, I I'm quite fond of. Well, there's something Carson always brings, even when he's kind of sleazy, like in Mildred Pierce. Uh -huh, right. He always brings some kind of poignance to his roles. Yeah. There's a sense of uh, woundedness or or disappointment, you know, behind everything that he's doing. Yeah. You know, that, I mean. Yeah, it's like he was born, there, there's some, right. I mean, there's something, if, if one of the qualities he carries over from, from film to film is, C Carson usually loses on one level or another, right? Sometimes it's in love, sometimes it's, you know, when he's scheming with Dennis Morgan, but, you know, I mean, he, he's, he's like a born to lose character. And, uh, and he, he tell, you know, he telegraphs that. And that, that's, you know, part of the reason, or, or maybe a large part of the reason that we can like him when he's a jerk is that, is that we know he's not going to win. And, and we know on some level he knows he's not going to win. And yes. that, that lets us like him. Yeah. He's, uh, you know, one of the great character actors died of COVID right at the beginning of the epidemic, who was uh, Alan Garfield. Oh yeah, I yeah. I loved Alan Garfield. Yeah, he was so all great. that great work in uh, in Altman's films. Yeah, yeah, and in the conversation, and in Vim yeah. Vendors, the state of things, and a yeah. lot of other films, Robert Downey Senior films. Right, uh, and, and he you know, too he, was he, great at being unappealing. Right. Yeah, he he was he was great at being very unappealing. Right. Uh, unlike Carson, he didn't have that kind of humanizing poignance a lot of time a lot of the time he just seemed like an an irritation you know he was there to annoy people somehow right but but also what then what saved garfield is this great sense of of existential disgust with the world right that he frequently yes. brought to his character absolutely yeah. um uh alan garfield's not in the book though i just bring him up because well, that's, he, that's he was great. I love one of the, 
<laughs> he's one of the last great character actors from the 70s you know who was right. who was it just made you so glad when uh, alan garfield showed up in a movie you right know? that's right yeah uh, that's him your book yeah your book ends with uh, a, a section on martin balsam yeah. who uh, was a friend of your father's they grew up together mm -hmm. in brooklyn in um, bronx but you yeah. never met mm -hmm. him yeah in the bronx pardon me yeah, yeah. Sir. Um, you grew up in Brooklyn. Yeah, your yeah, father sir. grew up in the Bronx. And so Martin Balsam people, Martin Balsam is a very recognizable actor, but probably few people know his name. He plays exactly. the detective who dies upstairs in Psycho. He plays uh, Audrey Hepburn's agent in Breakfast at Tiffany's. Right. Um, what else is he in? Uh, oh, he's in 12 Angry Men. He was yeah. in, uh, the end of his life he was on, uh, you know, he was with Carol o uh, Carol O'Connor in that uh, in the sequel to All in the Family, right? And um, he was he was the last uh, he was the last of the robbers to be arrested in the taking of Pelham one two three, exactly, the one with the right. Yeah. right. That's so right. He he's kind of the quintessential character actor. He is. He absolutely it, is. Yeah. You know, one of the things that's really interesting, Scott, is that uh, I would you know as I was working on the book, I would frequently mention Martin Balsam, and and as as someone I think of as really I mean a great character actor and someone who was in so many marquee films, almost no I mean other than people you know who who know films and follow films, almost nobody would would know who the hell he was. And uh, and then, you know, if I would show them a, a photograph, say that, you know, the staircase photo from Psycho or or maybe, a, you know, a photo from uh, Pelham one, two, three, they, they would immediately recognize them. But nobody nobody would get the name, uh, which right. I found pretty fascinating. Uh, well, he he is he has a very <clears throat> pardon me. He has a very distinctive look and voice. Yeah. And, and he is very memorable. You know, yeah. whenever he's you know, you, you he really somehow you know, makes you remember his performances, even when he's with, you know, much, much bigger stars. Right. Uh, Audrey Hepburn, even. You know. Right, that's right. One of the things that, that I, I hadn't known that, that I, I thought was so interesting that I found out when I was writing about him was that Kubrick originally picked him to do the voice of Hal in 2001. Um, but uh, he thought his voice was a little too American. So, right. Uh, yeah, so he moved on. <laughs> well, he does. He does have a friendly voice. He yeah. has a friendly voice, but his voice is also very wised up. Yeah, that's right. You know, he sounds yeah. like seen some things. He knows things that you maybe don't know about. So maybe yeah. as Hal, it would not have been as neutral as the voice of exactly Douglas. Exactly right. Brown. That's yeah. right. Yeah, but Balsam too, another guy, but in in a very different way. Um, and, and perhaps you know, a, you know, a, a slightly more um, well, in a more uh, in a more everymanish way than uh, than perhaps uh, Jack Carson. Uh, Balsam too frequently is someone who uh, who ends up short. You know, who's a, a you know, he had several roles where he he played a, a bit of the kind of schlemiel character, um, where he you know he just. Uh, you know, he, he just doesn't sort of have the goods. And, um, but, uh, but, but uh, of, of sort of nearer uh, uh, to, to modern film character actors, I, I can't think of anyone who has that more of that kind of everyman quality than Balsam did. Well, there's now today, there's John C. Riley. John C. Riley, right. That, right. You know, who's, you know, a lot of character actors in the classic era and today come from comedy. 
Right, right. Right, but they, they end up not in comedy films sometimes, you know, right. um, which adds so much to movies like Casablanca right. or, or uh, you know, certain Howard Hawks films. Right, that's right. Know, some, some of which are comedies, but, uh, you know, there's, yeah. there's, there's a demented, there was a demented quality to character actors uh, in that era that is, you don't see as much now. Right, when someone like, right. When someone like John C. Riley shows up, it's present again. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. John C. Riley. When John C. Riley shows up, you know that uh, uh, that uh, you know someone's going. You know, it's all going to go over the cliff. Um, yeah, exactly. But yeah, but that's. But as you point out, that's that's there in Lubitsch and um, and uh, and so many early films too. Exactly. Right. Right. So I don't know what I, I don't know. What, have we gone over? You can cut this part out, Eve. Right. Yeah. How are we doing, Eve? Um, we're good. You could ask one more question if you want, and then I can come back in. Okay. Okay. Yeah. All right. I wanted to find out. So I, I wonder, uh, David, why you chose Celeste Holm for the title of the book. Maybe you right. could talk about that a little bit. Well, uh, you know, Celeste Holm uh, is... Uh, I, the play, of course, the rather obvious play in the title is to uh, is to Stockholm syndrome, this feeling of being captive or captivated. I was playing around with that, and Celeste Holm, uh, for me, uh, always symbolized uh, this kind of uh, perfection of of the urbane. Uh, plus, she she was simply you know a wonderful wonderful actress. Uh, she was a little bit like Eve Arden in that she could really snap a line, um, but uh, but but even perhaps uh, represented something a, a little bit more sophisticated, uh, uh, even in many of her performances. Uh, I, I I always especially responded to her in uh, Gentleman's Agreement, uh, which has always the ending of which always just confounded me. Uh, one of one of the of, of the actresses I talk about who are not chosen in favor of uh, of other sort of more ingenue like uh, actresses. That's really one of the worst. Gregory Peck's choice of Dorothy McGuire, who actually I, I think won the Academy Award for Best Supporting Actress for Gentleman's Agreement. Um, Dorothy McGuire. Wait, Dorothy McGuire won an Oscar for that. Uh, I, or, or Celeste Holm. No, I think. Oh wait. Um, I don't know. I, I'm not sure either. I mean, I just, I just surprised that Dorothy McGuire would have won an Oscar for that. She was but not. I, I'll have to check. I, I think she might have actually. Um, and, uh, but, um, I, I, I always love to leave an interview with, with an, you know, an errant piece of information. Um, well, I mean, it doesn't really, it doesn't matter. No, I'm, not, I'm, <laughs> I'm only kidding. But, uh, but it, it's it's a really terrible choice, um, and uh, because Celeste Holm is actually kind of perfect in uh, *Gentleman's Agreement*. Uh, I mean, she has this wonderful uh, uh, banter with John Garfield, one of my favorite actors in the world, and um, uh, this wonderful sympathy towards Gregory Peck. She's perfectly placed. Uh, She's she's uh, fashionable. She's uh, you know she she she's staunchly anti-prejudiced. I mean, she's sort of everything, and and it it represents this sense that you can be absolutely perfect 
and it's still not good enough. And, and the film completely lacks a sense of irony about that, you know? Right. And so, uh, uh, you know, and so, you know, among his many other black marks, uh, Eli Kazan's always had uh, a big black one uh, in my book for, for that. So, uh, and then of course, you know, all of her other great, great uh, performances, uh, All About Eve, uh, et cetera, so. Right, she's oftentimes the best friend in movies. Yeah, of, that's uh, right. She's Which Eddie is Davis's friend in All About Eve. Exactly, the sidekick is is just one of the classic roles of the the character actor. Right, exactly. Um, well, that's uh, that's you know your book is really, really you know all the actors you discuss in it are so interesting, and the way you relate relate it to your own life and your family, I guess, is something we don't have time to talk about now. But that's a very uh, interesting aspect of the book that I think any film fan can understand because you know one kind of marks one's life in terms of when you saw certain films in your life you know that, uh, well thank thank you Scott I, I I wanted to 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 mention again that that your book the earth dies streaming uh, is just uh, such a wonderful collection of uh, uh, reviews and mini essays that it was is pure delight to read well, thank you. I appreciate that. It's great to talk to you today. You too, Scott. Thank you both for this conversation. It was great. Um, for our listeners, you could buy Celeste Holmes Syndrome on our website or in store. Um, Earth Dice Streaming as well. Um, some quotes that I really enjoyed, that actors today are a little bit too complicated by their fame. <laughs> Yeah. And I love the concept of being great at being unappealing. It seems something to strive for. <laughs> um, <laughs> do you two have any last words before we go? Uh, I think, you know, I was just grateful for the chance to talk so much about movies. There are, there are a few things I like talking about more. Yeah. It's I, a, think I think people should go out and watch one of the movies we talked about today and look at the character actors, not the leads, you know, mm. see how that changes it for them. Mm. Yeah. Something like Mildred yeah. Pierce, especially. Yeah, watch a film and, and just watch the way the character actors, uh, you know, are fit, uh, fit into the scene. I mean, just spend the movie watching the character actors as Scott suggests. It's a lot of fun, very, very revealing. Yeah, everyone do your research. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Thank you both. Um, Thank you, Ian. Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon. I see.